0: Works well and sometimes it does. Where Mike? Hi Lisa, hi Dory, Jim. Melanie, are you on it? Actually, I just got it to work just now, so okay. I'm all set. Me- thank you for the bid, Melanie. Did you drive here this morning to do that? Did I see your car? kids and uh yeah so good. I wanted that to do that and I thought while I'm here I'll just go find the bins. Well thank you. you very thoughtful glad to do it. Thank you. Where's your bride Jim? Uh, upstairs I think she'll be coming okay. Good. Very good. Good to see everyone. I assume you're able to access the handout for this morning. tee it up, beloved, we are returning to Romans 6 from our long and arduous digression into our handout on sin and temptation. So the handout before you, if you want, go ahead and uh, mute your Zoom screen, if you would, thanks. Thanks. And on the handout, hopefully you've accessed, is The Reign of Life, The Essence of Christian Obedience, Romans six twelve to 23. I anticipate that we'll finish Romans 6 this morning. And uh, next week, I've, um, please tune in. Paul Cornwell from Crossroads Resurrection Group will be doing the uh, Sunday School Hour for us. So make sure you tune into that. Make sure you get the workbook. You've maybe seen uh, the communication from Session about picking up the workbook. You'll get a link this week, an email about uh, how to access that if you want to print your own copy. But the workbooks will be put out under the cover in the children's wing in a plastic bin all week long. So please make sure you get that. It's essential to our work together as a congregation. Paul wants everyone to have the workbook. At any rate, next week Paul's preaching as a part of his ministry among us. He will also do a basic teaching during this hour on peacemaking principles, so make sure you tune in. You won't see me unless I'm going to be introducing him, but you'll see Paul, but please, please tune in next week. Let me pray for us. Our Father and our God, we worship you this morning as the God of life, the God of our breath, our very existence, the God to whom belongs all glory and honor and praise and dominion and power and blessing and thanksgiving. No God but you, the one and the true God, eternal, everlasting, faithful, good, gracious. And how glorious it is that you long to reveal yourself to us, not only in creation, not only in your word, but so supremely in Jesus Christ, the God-man whom to see is to see the Father, Whom to know is to have life eternal, and whom to see is to know what it means to be human. We bless you, Jesus, for your perfect obedience on this earth, earning a righteousness we never could to give us that as a gift. We bless you for your triumphant death on the cross to put away the guilt of our sin and sending your spirit, having ascended to the Father, that in He living in us means we are no longer slaves to sin. We are new creatures by the power of the Spirit. This is stunningly glorious. and We confess together we often do not live out of the resources that we have in the gospel. We're slow to access them. We're slow to think about who we truly are. And therefore we give in too easily to the temptations of the flesh. Use this time that the word of God would be powerful to change our thinking and to change us and to cause us to revel in the riches that are ours in the gospel. We pray this for Jesus' sake, amen. Let me read for us our text, Romans 6, 12 to 23. I've also provided for you on the handout. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin, as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and they become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is the eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What great hope for people who struggle with sin. What great hope for people who grow in their disdain of the passions of the flesh. What great hope for people who, who find an increasing desire in their heart to obey God and to please him. One of the sure marks that you have a new heart. There's an increasing desire to please the Lord. There's an increasing awareness of the power of sin. There's this increasing awareness of this battle within. So let's start with how Paul states a fact. You live in a changed dominion, 12 and 13. Let not sin reign. Remember that this is the second imperative, the second command in the entire book of Romans so far. The first is verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin. The first imperative of Romans is is a command to think about yourself as a certain way. I'm no longer uh, dead in sin, I'm alive in Christ. I'm applying what it means to be in union with Christ to my thinking, to my being, so that I can be who I am. That's the first command. The second command is don't let sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Sin wants to make you obey these epithymia, these over-inordinate desires, passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought uh, from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So verse 12, you now have a choice. You're not a slave to sin. You can choose by the power of the Spirit to obey God. So what fruit of the Spirit do you think is mainly in view here? Self-control? It's that ability when you feel an urge in you to be tempted towards sin, it's the ability to choose in that moment by the power of the Spirit to obey God and not to give in to sin. So think of sin sometimes as knocking on the front door of your heart and, and, and you open the door, and there's sin saying, hey, why don't you indulge this? Uh, and you want to slam the door in the face, uh, slam in the face of sin, and ask the Holy Spirit for the grace to choose according to who you are, alive in Christ. Sometimes sin slips in through the back door, kind of unannounced, and you... And then you realize, oh my goodness, I realize right now I'm being judgmental. I realize right now I've just slipped into lust. I realize right now I'm losing control over, you know, fill in the blank. So sin is very deceptive. It's always trying to get the better of us. You now have a choice. And we can't make the right choice apart from a life that's seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This should be a prayer of yours and mine every morning, if not every hour of the day. Ephesians 5.18, don't don't be drunk with wine, that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Present imperative, go on being filled. Come under the control of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, inform my thinking. Holy Spirit, take hold of my passions. Holy Spirit, bring forth, let me be a a man intoxicated with the love and the grace of Jesus to bring forth the fruits of his life. Verse 13, he tells you now how to not let sin reign. And in typical Pauline fashion, Paul gives you the put off, what not to do, as well as the put on, what you should do. Paul's a genius. He just doesn't say, hey, stop doing this. He does tell you what to stop doing, but he always tells you what to put in its place. So you have the negative and the positive. And he seems to be answering the question, what does an instrument of righteousness look like? And he wants to answer that question so it's clear to you. Let's be sure we know what righteousness means. What does Paul mean by righteousness? Righteousness is thought, word, and deed that mirrors God's character as revealed in God's word, as embodied perfectly in Jesus. You want to know what righteousness is? Look at Jesus. You don't want to know the the, the right thing to do that conforms to God's character? His word specifies that. Summarized in the Ten Commandments, love God, love neighbor, and teased out specifically in different places in uh, in the Bible for us. That's righteousness. And Paul says, don't present your members as instruments of sin. So sin knocks on the door, you open the door, and when Paul talks about his members, he's probably thinking about parts of your body, your tongue, your hands, your feet, You know, the evil are swift to run to evil. But all this begins in your heart, doesn't it? It begins with your thoughts, your emotions, your passions, your desires, your goals. Because we're always acting out of that thing we tell ourselves we need to be whole as a human being. So you remember, so our bodies express what's going on in our hearts. Jesus said you can always tell from somebody's words what's filling their hearts, what we're telling ourselves. Those are your members. What's the motivation? Paul, this is B now, grace is the motivation. Paul says in 14, you're under grace. Sin will have no dominion over you. It's not a command, it's it's an indicative, it's a statement. It's it's the fact that follows from your union with Christ. And he says, since you're not under law, but under grace. Curious phrase, isn't it? Some people have taken this to understand that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament Jews were under the law. They were given this legal code as a way of finding acceptance with God. Now that Jesus has come, we're under grace. That's not the way to understand this phrase. Basically, the way to understand this phrase is to look at the phrase under law, as being in solidarity with Adam, under grace, and being in solidarity with Christ. Remember back when we started the whole study, we said there's only two kinds of people in the world. We're all born into this world, into this life, one with Adam. We're born slaves to sin, we're born under the reign of death, we're born one with Adam. By the grace of the gospel, through the spoils of Jesus Christ, the spirit-working faith in our hearts, faith unites us to Jesus. Only two kinds of people in the world. You're either in solidarity with Adam, slave to sin, dead, blind, subject of Satan, all those awful things, or by the grace of God, you've been delivered into a new domain, a new dominion. You're in solidarity with Jesus. So let's think about what under the law means. Who in history were the first people to be under the law? Adam and Eve. God created them in perfect righteousness. He created them to obey God. God didn't need to give any uh, Ten Commandments or anything. They had righteousness written in their souls. They were created in perfect righteousness. By virtue of walking with God, knowing God, and seeing God, there wasn't any doubt in their mind about what holiness and righteousness looked like. So for a season, we don't know how long, they lived Under the law, they pleased God. Everything was great. God gave a specific command. Don't eat of that tree. They entered into a probationary period. Don't eat of that tree. They failed, as you know. Now, human beings like Adam and Eve are still bound to give God perfect obedience. In fact, that's the basis on which every human being will be judged the moment they die and will be judged on judgment day by virtue of what it means to be human, you owe God perfect righteousness. That's what we owe God, that's what it means to be human. So every human being is born in solidarity with Adam, they're born under the law. They owe God, if they're gonna make a claim on the presence of God in heaven, what they owe God is perfection. And of course, because we're in solidarity with Adam, all we can give God is sin. Jesus has come as the second Adam, Galatians 4 tells us he was born of a woman, a human person to represent us, human beings, born under the law, like the second Adam, and Jesus has come in completely different circumstances. He wasn't tempted in paradise as Adam and Eve were. He was tempted in the wilderness. He was tempted in very trying situations to render to God that perfect obedience without which you'll never see the face of God. I'll actually be alluding to that in my sermon this morning the fact that Christians are free from the sin because Christ has given us the obedience that we need. So so you're either under the law, living as one who, if you want to make a claim on the presence of God, you owe God perfect obedience, or if you're under grace, you are trusting what Jesus has done to make you right before God. Trust yourself, trust Jesus. That's a, that's a really easy choice. I don't want to trust myself because I can't give God what he requires. Jesus did This is the glory, the freedom, the wonder, the power of the gospel. That's that's the person that you're going to be fighting sin. So that's what he means by no longer under law but under grace. You're a person who has nothing to prove, nothing to lose because Jesus has given it all for you. Verse 15, grace is not though license to sin. So Paul, as soon as he says you're not under law but under grace, he anticipates people erroneously thinking, oh good, I can do whatever I want, I'm not under law, I'm freed from that, I live by grace, it doesn't matter what I do. You'll also hear this in the sermon. It's interesting how often this lesson corresponds with the sermon, but that's not the point. So he raises the question, almost the question that sets up Romans 6, what then, are we to sin? because we're not under law, but under grace. He answers his own question. Are you kidding? By no means. And then he gives the principle why we can't go on sinning because we're under grace, under law. The principle's verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're a slave of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So here's his answer is a two-sided coin. You're a slave of which master you obey, and any act of obedience produces distinct outcomes. See, Paul is saying there is no such thing as a person who's free. Bob Dylan said it, you've got to serve somebody. All of our lives are constantly in service to someone or something. We all live for a cause ultimately. And that causes the thing that you tell yourself you need in order to be happy, in order to be fulfilled, in order to be truly human. Whatever it is, that thing that you believe, and often the, the three big idols that, that, um, that, that grip human hearts are you tell yourself you need to be liked, you tell yourself you need to be right, or you tell yourself you need to be in control. And there's tons of other idols that people live for. But all whatever the thing you live for, that's your master. Whatever you tell yourself you must have, you are its slave. And so Paul, that's, the, that's the principle Paul's working from. And he's saying that um, um, whatever you're a slave to, you're going to obey. And any act of obedience has very distinct outcomes. What are the outcomes? Well, if you're, um, he says if you're a slave of sin, that produces death. Obviously, if you're never forgiven of your sins, that refers to eternal death, eternal separation from God. Probably what Paul means by death here is everything that marks human brokenness. Anything that is missing the fullness of life, the fullness of glory, the fullness of joy, the fullness of righteousness that that comes under God's rule. You see this in Proverbs, uh, this idea of death. It, It isn't not having breath in your lungs. It's not having the life of God in you producing godliness. So death is the absence of what pleases God. It's the presence of everything everything that God finds abhorrent. It's everything that our pride, our unbelief, our selfishness produces. Think of death that way. So when sin knocks at the door and you say, okay, I'll enter into a partnership with whatever you're offering me today, Paul is saying, what is produced is death. When obedience knocks at the door, what is produced is license, is righteousness. What James calls in his epistle the perfect law of freedom. The perfect law of freedom. And you know that in your life. You know the freedom that comes, the joy that comes. Making the right choice by the power of the Spirit to obey God, not to give in to temptation. You know that joy. You know that freedom. So, we're all under a taskmaster. Sin is a horrible taskmaster. Whatever it requires you to do produces death. You you never sense the fullness of being human. You never sense the pleasure of God. Death, death, death. So sin produces death. Obedience produces righteousness. That's the principle. D, the application, 17 and 18. He says, but thanks be to God, that though you were once slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So Paul, it's so interesting how Paul is constantly asking Christians to reflect on what you were, what you are now. Think about what you were, Revel in what you are now. He's saying, do the existential math. Look at your life. So let's unpack this because there's some wonderful tidbits in these two uh, two verses. He starts by saying, but, meaning, the only reason you would think about wanting to be a slave of righteousness is God. Thanks be to God. God has brought about this change. God has changed your mind. God has rescued you from sin. God has brought you from darkness to light, death to life. God has swooped in and done what you never wanted to do or could do or dream of doing for yourself. Now, sidebar, I'm looking at Melanie on my screen. We have a ministry in our church to children. Why? We have a wonderful ministry of children because we believe in God's economy that when parents are being, uh, are being faithful to God's call and, and, and discipling their children in the ways of the Lord, their children are blessed to escape the full ravages of being born slaves to sin. God has a way of counteracting that. So you may, you, may have, you may say, I was brought up in a covenant home. I can't remember a time to, co- to compare an unconverted life with a converted life. Great, praise God. That's the way it should be. That's, the way, that's why we're thrilled to serve our children. That's why one of the most significant things you could do with your time and talent at Wallace is help in the nursery, help, with, help Melanie with the children, serve the children at all the different levels, be partners with the parents, Seeing that the kids are falling in love with Jesus so that they can be people who say, oh, I never really knew a time when I was a slave to sin. Now, they get converted and the Spirit begins to work in them and they realize, oh yes, the power of sin is very strong. Okay, just an advertisement for how you and I, how we can be faithful to the Lord on behalf of our covenant children. And maybe you had that experience. Bless God for it. So, but thanks be to God. So if you were raised in the covenant home, thanks be to God. If you were raised in a pagan home and you're now a Christian, thanks be to God. If you find yourself in union with Christ now by faith, thanks be to God. Start every day. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. He did it. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, right? I was born in solidarity with Adam. I was born a slave to sin. I was born spiritually dead. No appetite for God. No inclination to move towards God. I was born blind as to what's really important. Though you were once slave to sin. And of course, you know, wherever Paul evangelized uh, and planted churches, by and large, most of the churches were made up of Gentiles. So they were born. They weren't born into covenant homes. There were some Jewish members in the churches to which he writes. And maybe in some of those Jewish homes, they were raised in uh, as covenant children, but for the most part, Paul is writing to Gentiles who can readily identify with his language. That's why he's speaking this way. That though you were once slaves to sin, I was born a slave to sin, you have become obedient from the heart. Well, what's he talking about? Conversion. Converted people become obedient to God. Converted people show a difference in the direction of their lives. The Greek word uh, for uh, for this is repentance. Literally, uh, repentance means change of mind. Meta, the Greek word for change. Noia, mind. Repentance is a change of mind. When, and the idea, it's a complete change of direction. I was born living for sin, a slave to sin. Whatever sin told me to do, I had to do. I just had no choice. Now, that person's dead. That person born a slave to sin was crucified on the cross of Jesus. I'm a new person. I've turned my back on sin. I don't want to, I don't want to answer the door when sin comes knocking. I'm now a slave of obedience because I'm in union with Jesus Christ. I've become obedient. Not perfectly obedient, but there's a new direction, a completely new direction. And he says you become obedient from the heart. Christians aren't just doing the right thing. Thing because it's the right thing to do. They're doing the right thing out of thanks to God with a new motivation. I want to please my Father <coughs> in heaven because of the depths he went to save me for himself. It's from the heart. All the other relig- world religions are concerned with sets of behaviors for those behaviors in and of themselves. Christianity is the religion of the heart. Believe it or not, they call John Calvin the theologian of the heart. The theologians that you love and read all understand this. It is the change of heart. Everything comes from the heart. We have a new motive. Now, because I'm so loved by Christ, I want to love Christ. And I want to love those that belong to Christ. So it's having our hearts filled with the love of Christ, the love Paul would later say, What is it, 2 Corinthians 5? The love of Christ constrains us. And you know the difference between doing something grudgingly and out of duty and out of love. And people can also tell if you're serving them out of love or out of duty. So he says you have become obedient. This is talking about conversion. You become obedient from the heart. There's a new heart with new affections, new motivations new goals, and that is God's glory, not my own, to that standard of teaching to which you're committed. So the Christian faith is a body of truth. It's a body of facts. There's a teaching that, that you've got to understand, and that teaching then sets you free. Jesus said in John 8, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free, and that's how you know you're truly my disciples. You're committed to a body of teaching. We find that in the Bible. Uh, we summarize it in the Gospel. You became committed to a standard of teaching. You're no longer making up your own mind about what's true. You're submitted to God's revelation. Your worldview is distinctly God-centered. You're dependent on revelation from God to understand who you are, to understand who he is, to understand the world that you're in. You commit, you're commit. obedient from the heart to a standard of teaching to which you were committed. Christians are committed to a body of teaching and they are then start a lifelong process of seeking to further understand and apply that teaching to their lives, that's why you tuned in this morning, because you're committed to a form of teaching. God bless you. Your love for truth, your love for the Bible, what evidence of God's grace in your life? What evidence of God's love for you and your love for God? It's beautiful. I've been privileged for more than 30 years to teach and preach in churches that are made up of people like you who love the truth, who want God's word, and who would tolerate nothing else. What a privilege, what a privilege. What a stewardship, what a responsibility for me to be faithful to that teaching. I don't, you probably don't know this, but each morning before the worship service, we gather and we pray for the worship service. And invariably, you know, Andy's always there because he's playing guitar. Andy almost always prays and make Mike, Sherrod, or whoever's preaching uh, a workman who does not need to be unashamed. He's quoting from 2 Timothy chapter 2 Paul exhorting Timothy to be a workman unashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And he prays that uh, constantly, week in and week out. That's for your sake. He wants you uh, to get the truth from the mouth of the preacher. And then verse 18 And having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. Translated. Christian morality can be summed up in this simple phrase. Be who you are. You're a slave of righteousness. You're a slave of God. You're not a slave of sin. You're not a slave of the devil. Be who you are. And finally, the illustration is verses 19 to 23, what I'm calling same pattern, different results, Let's look at these verses again. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. I I think what Paul means is he's a little hesitant drawing on the slavery analogy because it it was sometimes the case that slaves in the Roman Empire were treated harshly. Not always the case. We'll see in several weeks in 1 Peter when Peter tells slaves to be subject to their masters The institution of slavery in the Roman Empire was vastly different than the horrible situation of slaves in America several centuries ago. Different situation, but Paul feels a little discomfort appealing to this analogy because sometimes in that culture, slaves could be treated harshly. I think that's what he means by speaking in human terms because of your limitations. Nonetheless, he's grabbed this visible institution to make his point. He says, for just as you once, presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. What's the pattern? You always, all of your behavior flows out of what you give yourself over to. What you tell yourself you think you need to be whole, to be happy, to be fulfilled, to be satisfied, to to whatever it is, there's something you give yourself over to. (coughs) That has implications, right? Uh, and you're a slave to that thing. Now, if it's sinful, that leads to impurity and further lawlessness. So sin never says enough. When sin knocks at your door and says, hey, indulge me on this thing, and you do, it becomes easier the next time you open the door to give in to that thing. And and, and um, Proverbs alludes to this, that that sin becomes a snare. And, and so it's, it's like a, uh, if you take a knot, yeah, you, your shoelaces. If you sh- tie your shoelaces a certain way, it's, it's easy to get that knot out. But if you keep forcing it, forcing it, you know, that knot becomes so tight, you just have to sit down. It takes hours to undo the knot. Sin, it becomes a noose. It just becomes tighter and tighter and tighter around our hearts the more we give into it. It's a, it's a downward slope. And... Um, <laughs> And then what's sad is people get into terrible situations because they become—they give themselves over to certain sins and Satan tends to sit on that and tell you, you'll never change, you'll never be different, God hates you, you're consigned to be this way, all of which are lies. Lies. Because God can change anybody. There's the resurrection power of Jesus that work in those of us who belong to Jesus to change the power of sin. But you get the point Uh, you give yourself over to impurity, lawlessness, he says, leading to more lawlessness. And so one sin begets and maybe another kind of sin. So now he says, same pattern, instead of presenting yourself to sin, see righteousness in the living room saying, no, I'm a better alternative. Turn from the front door, turn to righteousness. Present your members as slaves to righteousness. What does that lead to? Sanctification, growth in holiness, growth with grace, becoming more and more like Jesus, finding your heart in more conformity to what pleases God. So you're increasingly finding more pleasure obeying God than giving into to sin. So if we really need to pray that we'll become addicted to pleasing the heart of God. Become, become a slave to doing what is right and, and again, I, again, it's got to be personal. It can't be, it's just the right thing to do, so do it. No, it's because our hearts are engaging with the heart of God. And we're responding to his love. And in response to that love, you always want to please the one that you love. And then verse 20 for when you were slaves of sin, so he wants to tease this out a little bit more. Again, Paul, look at your unconverted life. Look at your converted life. Do the math. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. <laughs> That's a curious phrase. Sometimes Paul uses phrases. I kind of scratch my head and I go, I'm not sure what he was thinking. Let me guess. I think what he's he's saying is, when you were a slave to sin, you thought righteousness didn't apply to you. That didn't apply to you, you were free. When Janice and I were driving up on the Beltway last night to return here to be with you in College Park, there were people going at least 100 miles an hour on the Beltway. And I think there's an attitude out there The cops must not be pulling people over or it was late enough at night. I mean, you wouldn't believe how fast the people were going. They're free in regard to the speed limit, so they think. And I said to my wife, my mom used to say there's an accident going somewhere to happen. A lot of people go that fast, you ever heard that phrase? Mm -hmm. There's an accident, going. a lot of people go that fast, they end up not only hurting themselves but hurting other people, right? You give yourself over to further homelessness. At any rate, people going that fast have told themselves, speed limit don't apply to me, I'm gonna go 100 on the beltway they think they're free in regard to the speed limit. That's my guess of what he means by you were free in regard to righteousness. He certainly doesn't mean they weren't obligated to give God righteousness, of course they were. Everyone is obligated to give God the righteousness that he deserves. 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? So Christian believer, you who were formerly pagans, You now are ashamed of certain things about your life. Or you're ashamed of what you used to do. Think back on those things. What fruit did you get? Maybe it was a bunch of speeding tickets. (laughs) Or worse, you left in your wake a trail of broken relationships. Because of the way you treated people. People think you're a first-class jerk because of the way you spoke, the way you treated people, your lack of humility. What fruit were you getting when your pride was out of control? When your self-control was non-existent? When you were indulging the passions of the flesh? What fruit were you getting? This is really helpful, isn't it? Paul is saying, compare your lives, do the math. If you're not sure, ask people that grew up around you. If we have the courage. What was the fruit? Some of us parents come to the point where we have to ask our children for forgiveness. I had to do this with one of my children. When we moved to Lynchburg and I started planting a new church, I neglected one of my children. It was a difficult time for him. Years later, I went to this child and said, please forgive me. I neglected spending time with you. I neglected you as a father. He did. We have a fabulous relationship now, a credit to the grace that's in his par- heart. But sometimes you might need to go make amends. I was telling Janice the other day, there's this gal I dated in college that I just dropped like a lead balloon. I don't know what happened. I just lost interest in her overnight. I didn't I didn't treat her very well. I, I, just, I never gave her an explanation. And I... I'd love to find her and ask her forgiveness because I was a first-class jerk in the way I treated her. I wouldn't blame her for knowing, thinking that about me. Anyway, what fruit were you getting at the time? You're learning way too much about me, but (laughs) what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you're now ashamed? So do the math, what was the fruit? For the end of those things is death, again, everything that marks the brokenness of humanity in rebellion against God. When human beings rebel against God, this is what life looks like, that's death. When human beings submit to God in joy, that's life. And you you can see, you can tell the difference. These are pleasant places to be around. 22, but now that you've been set free from sin, And to become slaves to God. See, Paul can't get away from the facts. There's been a change in dominion. You're in union with Christ. You're not a slave to sin. Now that you've been set free and become slaves to God, the fruit you get, think about the fruit, leads to sanctification and it's an eternal life. Get destiny in view and and, uh, realize that God is working this change in you, making you more and more like Jesus. Some of that is not always evident to us, sometimes we're the last to see what we look like uh, apart from others, but let's encourage one another, I see God using you, I see changing you, encourage people, um, be an instrument of God validating sanctification in other people, because sometimes we don't see it, but we have the role of encouraging one another, I see this, and I am really encouraged. I see this work of God in you, so let's Let's encourage one another in that. Help one another in that. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And of course, the outcome of sanctification, eternal life. Translated, it's worth it. And here's a summary statement to show you what this is ultimately all about. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God. This is where He began. Uh, he uses free gift five times at the end of Romans five. So He's He's lassoing us back to the, back into the second half of. Romans 5, the conclusion of Romans 5. And he's pulling this idea forward. It's saved by grace. It's a free gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. That is the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Those who love the gift and are partaking of the gift submit to his lordship. Right? You can't have the gift in Jesus not be your Lord. There's no such thing as Jesus as Savior, the gift, without Lord. We submit to this Lord And this is the Lord we hope to see because he will have made us like himself on that great day. All right, if you want to look ahead, we will start in two weeks in Romans 7. Next week, do tune in to uh, Paul Cornwall's presentation. Let's pray. I thank you, Father, for the participants on this Zoom uh, call this morning. They're here because they've experienced your love and they love you and they love your word and they want to grow in sanctification and you've given them the gift of everlasting life through Christ who became as as we see a slave on the cross he kept himself there he bound himself he was roped to that cross to bear in his body the penalty for our sins, all of our sins. We are completely forgiven. He has taken them out of the way, canceled the debt. We're free. So may we walk in the power of this freedom. May we see more and more the glory of this Jesus, and in seeing him, become like him. In seeing him, want to love him. Being loved by him, want to love others. So bring about, Jesus, love for one another because of your love for us in this body. And we pray you would use wonderfully uh, next week the ministry of Paul Cornwell to get us to a deeper place of loving, serving, bearing with one another in the bonds of peace by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.